Welcome to the PITC UK podcast with your host, Daryl Ferns, and her partner in true crime, Tom Ferns. The latest episode of the PITC UK podcast has some topics that some people may find distressing or upsetting. Welcome everyone to episode 6 of the PITC UK podcast. So, I'm Tom and I'm joined always by my true partner in crime, Daryl Ann. So, what are we going to be talking about today, Daryl? Today I thought that I that we could discuss something a little bit closer to home. Okay. Um, and it's a serial killer case. Right, okay, so this will be the first one we've done. It will be the first one. See, I feel like with a lot of the serial killer cases that they've been overdone. Right, okay. So, yeah, yeah. I'm always a bit apprehensive, but I thought that this one, being Pride Month and everything, would, you know, raise a lot of awareness for for the LGBT community. plus community. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... Should we just get into it? Let's crack on, yeah. The Grinder Serial Killer. The Grinder Killer, Mm -hmm. okay. So, Gabriel Kovari was a 22-year-old Slovakian man who, at the time of his death, had recently moved to the UK in the hopes of being able to live life as an openly gay person. Gabriel settled in London with his long-term boyfriend, Thierry, but ultimately, the couple broke up, leaving Gabriel needing a place to stay. He joined a gay networking website called Bender in order to meet new friends and hopefully find accommodation and eventually he connected with a guy named John Pape. Pape told Gabriel that he had a spare room which he was looking to rent out and after the two met and got on very well, Gabriel moved into John's flat and the two became friends. John has described Gabriel as very smart and sweet-natured and the two of them grew very close but only six weeks later Gabriel announced that he no longer needed the room. This came as a surprise to John, who explained during a BBC documentary on this case that Gabriel's departure seemed sudden, but nevertheless, he didn't want to pry, so we refrained from asking any questions, though it's believed that Gabriel had planned to move in with another man, rent-free, whom he'd met through Grindr. In the summer of 2014, the pair enjoyed farewell drinks together, uh, but unfortunately, John would never see his friend again. A week later, John was working from home when he received a visit from four police officers. They informed him that his friend Gabriel Kavari had been found dead by a dog walker earlier that morning in a graveyard uh, in St Margaret's Church, which is in Barking. Gabriel was found wearing sunglasses and his body was propped up against a wall in a sitting position next to a bag of his belongings. Police didn't believe that his death was suspicious and ultimately concluded that he'd just passed away from an overdose, but John wasn't convinced. While he considered that Gabriel may have committed suicide or succumbed to the elements, it just didn't make any sense and the mystery surrounding his friend's death made him feel compelled to investigate further. It's, yeah, you wouldn't just, you know, especially after the, the rushed exit from the, you know, the the flower house that yeah. they shared together and this he was found dead a week after leaving that place that's it so it would you would it would raise some questions definitely and there is um a little documentary on bbc3 about this case and it's right. centered around john and his search for the truth of what happened to his friend right and he just seems like the most loveliest friend that yeah. you could ask for somebody who is gonna Search for answers, I guess, yeah. 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 (laughs) Two months earlier, 
a 23-year-old fashion student named Anthony Walgate was found dead in the communal entrance of a block of flats in Barking, East London, in strikingly similar, strikingly similar circumstances to Gabriel. So this was two months earlier. Right, okay. Okay. Stephen Port, a resident of the flats, initially called 999 to report the body, explaining that he believed that the victim may have drunkenly collapsed or suffered a seizure. But when detectives began investigating, they uncovered that Anthony, who was originally from Hull, was occasionally working as a male escort in order to earn extra money from the evening and on the evening of the 17th of June he was contacted via an escort website by Stephen Port. Port offered Anthony £800 for his services and the pair met at Barking Station that night. Hmm. When police questioned Port he explained that Anthony was using drugs and had overdosed in his flat while he was at work and despite Stephen previously claiming that he didn't know the victim he was released by police. They didn't investigate further at this time uh, due to what Walgate's mum, the victim's mum, claims was expenses. Mm-hmm. So this this gentleman who actually made the 999 call was the one that picked him up from the train station? Yes. Okay. The one that he, he went on a They went on a, a date, date with or... Yeah. yeah, using him, his services, yep. should we say. Um, so... When the body's found, this Stephen guy saying, oh, there's this, he rings the police saying there's this drunk kid outside and he's might have had a seizure or something like that. And then police find out that he actually was out with him that wow. night. And then he changes his story and says, okay, he was at mine and he must have overdosed when I was in work. And but how would he have ended up in the, the alleyway with all his belongings? Exactly. You know, and then the police that you know again the, like yeah, this is, this is probably going to be one of those really frustrating ones for yeah. you where the police work is is shoddy again. Yeah, really, really shit. <laughs> well, we're only five minutes in and I'm already questioning the police, so that that shows you you know where we're at as far as the police work. So at this point, there's been two um, young gay men in. The close, same yeah. vicinity. Yeah, close proximity to there. Found dead from overdoses. Okay. Um, so that's just where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Around the time that Gabriel died, which was the first victim, but he was the second one to have been murdered. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John learned of Anthony's death while researching on the line, and in an attempt to gather more information, he contacted Gabriel's ex-boyfriend Thierry. A few weeks later, the men discovered that another young gay man had been found dead on the twentieth September by the same dog walker who found Gabriel in the exact same location, St. Margaret's Churchyard. The victim, a 21-year-old chef called Daniel Whitworth, was found propped up against a wall in a sitting position in a really similar manner to Gabriel. That same dog walker found them both? The same dog walker (laughs) had found two... That is the most unluckiest person in the world. Yeah. To find so two, you know, the same dog walker on separate occasions. You just wouldn't want to walk your dog again, would you? I wouldn't be going near that churchyard. Yeah. <laughs> Tell yeah. you that you would not get me near that cemetery ever again. Wow, that's that. Imagine the odds of that happening. It's sad. It's sad yeah. for the, the dog, the poor dog walker. I know. That's it. it. It's imagine like. It must be like, like deja vu, especially yeah. to find them in the exact same position. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must be. You'd think to yourself, like, oh my fucking god, not again. Yeah. You know, you, that that literally, if like... If it was me, I'd be like, okay, I'm cursed. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You'd think, oh, is it my fault? Uh, like, why, I'm why, going, yeah. these dead bodies keep turning up. Wow. 
Around this time, Thierry told John that he'd recently struck up an online friendship with a Californian man living in London called John Luck. Luck claimed to know that Gabriel and Daniel were friends to the two victims and that the two of them would often attend drug-fueled orgies together embarking. During these parties, which could last up to three days, Luck said that older men would drug young men and rape them, which would explain why these bodies were turning up around the area. Understandably alarmed by this information and worried that as a gay man himself, he may also be in danger, John Pape immediately reported his discoveries to Barking and Dagenham Police. However, they dismissed John's claims, stating that the deaths weren't connected or being treated as suspicious. Frustrated with law enforcement's lack of concern, John Pate knew that he had to try and warn the community of these unexplained deaths, so he contacted two LGBT support groups called Gallup and Pink News, knowing that they had close links to police. In agreement, both organisations approached police uh, to reiterate John's concerns, but ultimately they just repeated the same thing. The deaths were due to overdoses and were not suspicious. Not being funny anything, but like... I can see it from both sides, so I can see, you know, the fact that it's three individuals all turned up, all, well, it was three or two at this point. It, it was three. Um, three at this point. Uh, two found in the same cemetery and then one, one was in the... The alleyway outside of yeah. his house. Okay. So, three individuals all turn up in a relatively, lo you know, close location. You know, London's pretty big, but, you know... Well, I mean, the, the, the two that were found in the cemetery were in the same, same spot. spot. And then yeah. apparently the flat where the other guy was found was a few hundred feet away from the cemetery. Well, that, that you know, e even still. So three three people found within a mile radius of each other, let's say, um, all with the same, you know, the same way they've been set up. They're all set up. The belongings are there. You know, you'd think that would raise some questions. Um, but also, from a police standpoint, London is known for its drug use, for its, you know... Yeah. The, the sort of seedy nightlife as such, you know... And I get that, but I think that the thing is, is that just because somebody is using drugs doesn't mean that they don't deserve an investigation. Of course not, of course not. And, and I, yeah. I do understand why... Uh, Gabriel's friend was so adamant to mm -hmm. search for the truth because he, his friend wasn't like that. Yeah. And I think if you know someone personally and you know, like, for example, if I was found dead overdose somewhere, you know that I would never touch drugs. No, that's true. And you know that that would not be something that I would have done to myself. No, no, that's that's very true. I just think... Whereas I think if you've got, you know, the, the same old people who the police are used to dealing with on the drug mm -hmm. scene and everything yeah. like it maybe wouldn't come as much as a surprise but yeah and that that's yeah that that's where it was going to go is that if they're not known for having this type of behavior then definitely you know it does need to be investigated and this, i think that you know with the police with these drug cases and, and stuff like that they don't want to deal with them because they don't see them as crimes you know, they, they see them as just everyday a things. Nuisance. People, yeah, people overdosing. It's London. It happens. Especially like we were saying, I think on on the last uh, podcast that we did about the Brandon Lawson case, and mm -hmm. it was the same there that you know Dave just thought that he was a criminal. And my point is that I think no matter what you are choosing to do, the police are still there to give help. Yes. Anybody. Yeah. Whether your class, no matter what class you are, where you're from, what you choose to do in your spare time. 
you know, your race, gender, it shouldn't matter. No, I agree. It, it, it yeah. should. Everybody should have an equal chance at getting support yes. and help from the authorities if they need to. No, definitely. A few months later, John was summoned for the inquest into Gabriel's death as a key witness because he was the last person to have contact with the victim. John saw, John saw this as his opportunity to finally explain all of the information he had learned about the apparent drug parties, and in preparation, he combined a document filled with everything he knew ready to show police. However, the inquest was very disorganised, and John stated that police had misplaced important evidence such as phone records. Shockingly, oh. they ultimately moved forward without finding or discussing these documents at all. Ugh. I don't get it. I really, I, honestly, it's... So this is just an inquest in, into the, the unexplained death. Yeah. And John's there with all of his information saying, look, I've found out that he could have potentially been going to these parties that are run by yeah. older men that, you know, like to drug and rape younger men. Yeah. And they can't even be bothered to find phone records. Phone records to see if there's any evidence or any, you know, telltale signs in those records. Yeah, prior to his death, yeah, yeah. During the inquest, Coroner Nadia Parso read through a suicide note found inside the left hand of the third victim, Daniel Whitworth. In a note, Daniel supposedly wrote that he'd killed Gabriel with an accidental overdose of GHB. And then he was going to take his own life out of remorse and guilt for his killing his friend. Part of the note read, quote, I can't go on anymore. I took the life of my friend Gabriel. It was an accident. Please don't blame that guy I was with last night. John remembers feeling like the note seemed extremely impersonal and the overall tone was suspicious. Stating that there were no references to, a fa to his family, which you'd usually expect from a suicide note. Yeah and only that he was responsible for Gabriel's death. However, police said that they checked the handwriting with Daniel's family and they concluded that it was authentic, although Daniel's mum, Mandy, stated later that she couldn't be 100% sure. With this in mind, the coroner could not state for a fact that Daniel had written the note and due to unanswered questions by police, she had some concerns with the theory and couldn't rule out a third person being involved in the deaths. In a statement, Nadia said, most concerning are the findings by the pathologist of manual handling prior to his death and noted that the bedsheet he was found wrapped in was not forensically analysed and the bottle of a GBL, which is I think the form of GHB. Yeah. It's all letters to me, I have yeah. no idea. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, was that was found near him was not tested for fingerprints or DNA. So the note, obviously there's a lot to pick apart there, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So the note itself, it was right there, yeah, the, the, it was very impersonal. Mm -hmm. It was very specific mm -hmm. to not investigate the person I was with last night, <laughs> you know, and that is the stupidest thing. Literally, and you'd think that, you know, if it was me writing that note, if I just killed someone and I want to make it look like a suicide, the last thing that I'm going to want to do is try to even put in the minds of the investigators yeah. that I was with them. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing. It's like the first thing that I would think is, well, we need to talk to this guy. Well, exactly. Why, why is he so pressured that to put in this note, don't investigate this guy? <laughs> it's, like, it's like literally a seven-year-old like trying to explain some like something they've done wrong to yep. the parent and it's yeah, like yeah. 
you know what I mean? It's, no, definitely. It's the way that they would say something yeah. by dropping themselves in it, but thinking that they've covered the trap. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect it's sense. It's just... Um, the next thing laughable. as well is the, the fact that, once again, shoddy police work, no DNA was done on the bed sheet, no fingerprints taken from the, the bottle. That is minimum what minimum. should be done. Minimum. Whether it's suicide or not, there should be a thorough investigation. Of there should, because at the end of the day, this person has been found dead and you don't know how they died. So you'd want to rule out every possible... Haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And that's the thing, is that if it seems like in in the last sort of decade or even even beyond that, the you know, there used to be, the police used to have a notoriety of we're getting the right person we won't mess this up mm -hmm. we are going to use all the evidence we can to ensure that this is done right where it seems like you know even in the cases that we've done now we're only what six cases in everyone has a similar theme of well what's the most probable cause yeah uh, we'll go with that and I think that's what it feels probably like we wouldn't be discussing these cases that we've done previously right now if the police had gone in from the get-go and done everything right because then there wouldn't be a mystery yeah no there, that's there true you know we would know the answer already yeah no definitely um and not to shit on the police no of course not know, I, i'm, I'm wherever you know, stand yeah. on the police is like that's fine it's a personal choice yeah i do feel like recently like you said, maybe within the past few years, they've become, with the technology that they've got, yeah. they've become lazy. Yes. Because they just rely on... Computer you know, says no to, to, type yeah, situation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you think back to like the 1940s, there'd be a detective there with his notepad and his pen. And yeah, yeah. He would just be trying to get everything that he can. That's it. Well, the thing, you think you say that with like how they've got lazy and with the technology. They've got the technology to check for DNA to check for mm. fingerprints. So that should be the minimum that they're doing. But again, it's cost. Yeah, it's it, it time and money, isn't it? A hell of a lot of money to DNA test someone. Yeah. And you wouldn't think that. No. But it does. Yeah. So if they can get away with doing the bare minimum, like, okay, if they come across a scene where somebody has quite clearly been murdered, yeah. they're going to have to do that. They're going to have to test for DNA. Yeah. But if you can get away with someone... Putting it as a suicide. A suicide yeah. or an accidental overdose thing. Yeah. That's you know? that's wrong, isn't it? Mm. And this again, like I'm this is in England, so this these are the, the police that we may potentially deal with one day. Yeah. This isn't some town in America where we'll never go and we it's yeah. it's fine that the police aren't doing their way because it doesn't affect us. Like this could affect Well this, anyone could be in this situation. That's it. Well the, the, you know, people say that we've got the best police force in the world you know and based off what what we're saying here and what you know what you're telling me it's it's nowhere no better than mm. america's sh shitty police force and I, suppose, I suppose i could choose some cases like in the coming weeks where the police do a better job yeah you know it's not all police that no, like this but no, it's still it makes you think that three young gay men have died in the same circumstances in the same place and they're not even gonna attempt to swab for dna yeah on a blanket that one of them's found in yeah it just makes no sense no it doesn't 
After an open verdict was returned in this case, Daniel's mother Mandy asked police what the next steps in the investigation would be. However, she was dismissed and told that nothing more was to be done. So I, go I had to Google what an open verdict is because I'm not like clued up on British yeah. law, really. Yeah. Um, and an open verdict is uh, an option open to a coroner's jury at an inquest in the legal system of England and Wales. The verdict means that the jury confirms the death is suspicious but isn't unable to reach any other verdicts. Right. To them. So basically, yeah, the death suspicious. It's just a cop out, really. The death suspicious, but we don't. We're not going to do anything yeah, about it. Basically. Right. On the fifteenth of September, twenty fifteen, four months after the inquest and almost a year after the discovery of Daniel Whitworth, the body of a fourth man was found near the graveyard in similar circumstances to Gabriel and Daniel. Police later identified the body as belonging to Jack Taylor, a twenty-five-year-old forklift truck driver from Dagenham, East London. They discovered that on the night of the 13th of September, Jack had met with someone on Grinder and likely left home to hook up with this person. Jack is seen on CCTV arriving at Barking Station, where he then meets up with a man. The two then walk away together and Jack is never seen alive again. Jack's body was found with trap marks on his arms, which led police to believe that much like the three men before him, he'd simply overdosed. However, uh, Donna, which is Jack's sister, knew that her brother would never touch drugs, stating that he loved his job too much and he'd been vocally anti-drugs anti in the past. Right. She continued to be persistent with police, uh, arguing that the, they, had, they had to be links between all of the cases and after a lot of persuasion, police agreed to release photos of the man captured with Jack on CCTV footage to the public appealing for information. So if the, if the police have been told that, yeah, he'd gone on this date and he's not come home, um, was it the same station he was picked up as, as the earlier gentleman as well? Yeah. Okay. So that in itself is, you know, it's a red flag, mm -hmm. you know, and if someone's going off on a blind date with someone, you that know, they've met on yeah, they've met on through one of these dating apps, and and again, these dating apps, primarily as far as I'm aware, are for hookups. They're not for long-term relationships, and I'm not bashing anybody who has had a relationship on the back of these apps, but primarily that's what I believe they're there for. Is especially I do, I do or, feel like Grinder as well is is known to be more of a hookup than a yeah, relationship. Yeah. It's not it's it's not a dating site. It's a hookup app, and yeah. that's that's pretty much what I believe they are. So, you know, that's dangerous in itself. You know, going to a a place that you don't know to meet a person that you don't know for casual sex is not something that you know that in itself has its own dangers. So, mm -hmm. the fact that they, he's never returned from that primarily is the police. They should be wanting to know who is the last person that's seen this person alive. Exactly, you know. and it took days, and for his sisters to push for that to happen. Push for them to even check the CCTV at first. Yeah, and then once that was done, push to see if they could find who it was that he was with. Yeah, and it shouldn't be down to the family to do that to put the pressure no. on the police. The police no, that should that should be like number one on the priority list. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not a policewoman, and I couldn't do that job. Absolutely not. 
but it just seems like common sense to me. No, absolutely. That like I, I think, our seven-year-old would know to check that before anything else. Yes. Yeah. I think if I was a police officer and someone said to me, this is not right, my brother does not take drugs, my instant priority would be, right, this needs looking into. And I do feel like, yeah, the police probably think, well, every, you know, sister, every parent's going to say, my kid doesn't do this, my kid is yeah. a goody two-shoes who doesn't do anything wrong. Yeah, of Every course. parent's going to say that when the kid goes missing. So of that, course. you know, they are putting pressure on the police. Of course. But I still think, isn't it better to take that chance than to have been lied to? Yes. And, you know, he was on drugs and doing whatever. So, anyways, two days later, Stephen Port was identified from the video and arrested. Ah. So Stephen Port is the guy from the, the flats in yes. the first murder. Yeah, yeah. Who phoned the police and wow. was questioned and then released. So, Stephen Port was born on the 22nd of February 1975 in Southend on Sea, uh, making him 41 years old at the time of the murders. When he was one, Port and his family moved to Dagenham in Essex, where he grew up. His teachers claimed that Port was quiet and his peers in school described him as a loner who was often bullied. After leaving high school, Port enrolled in art college but eventually dropped out, instead becoming a chef at Stagecoach Bus Depot in West Ham. Stephen Port came out as gay in his mid-twenties and as an adult remained quite strange. I'm not saying strange, this is what 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 people have said. I'm not going to judge what strange is, but... uh, a former romantic partner of his says that the reason they broke up was because Port was incredibly childish. Neighbours have also come forward since and stated that he would exhibit quite odd behaviour for a grown man, such as playing with children's toys, which he would buy from Toys R Us. Hmm. Yeah. I, I play with toys, so I guess, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, no. Um, you know, especially if he's living on his own, you know, obviously. I mean, this is a 41 year old. Yeah. Like, and, you know, people do, and I'm not people saying that, yeah. anybody that plays with, any adult that plays with toys is a, a serial killer. No, of course. But it seemed odd to people. Yeah. He was doing it. So, like, we collect the Funko Pops. Yeah, I think, I think more and so now as well, it is more like, I remember I, when I was growing up, and again, pro wrestling was a big thing when I was growing up but it was still something that people were like that's a bit strange why are you watching wrestling yeah and wrestling? I remember when we first yeah. met and you were so scared to tell me that you that like, wrestling like pro wrestling yeah because um, you thought I'd think that and I'm like I'm one of those people that's like if it makes you happy I don't care that's it but if you sat and played with Transformer dolls yeah when we, when we were in our 20s without yeah. children there yeah that's it I would probably think like like, how would you feel if, yeah. like, I sat and played with my Barbies as, like, a yeah. grown woman? It's... Well, you look at, like, you know, even, like, Marvel films and stuff. Like, that used to be, like, oh, my God, you're into Spider-Man, you big geek. And now it's, like, you know, there's, there's people that love the the Avengers movies and all that. And it's, it's a lot more mainstream and stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying that, again, if you like the Avengers, you're a serial killer. But, you know, it's stuff like that that, you know it does it is a bit odd that you know he was physically playing with toys if he was collecting them it's a little bit different but if he was physically playing he with play, them he played with like hot wheels and yeah and that, then, that's strange and transformers uh, yeah figures. yeah 
Fair enough. I'm okay. not judging, but yeah. I, okay. I, I, each this, is, this is noted on every resource that I looked at, so I thought I'd just include it just in case no, anybody can tell us that that's what creates a serial killer. I don't Maybe. <laughs> Stephen Port met his victims via gay and bisexual social media networks and dating slash hookup apps. On these profiles, he'd essentially catfish people, often constructing biographies in which he'd make false claims about his life and background. In one, he pretended to have graduated from Oxford University, and in another, he wrote that he was in the Royal Navy. In order to maintain his confidence and sexual prowess while using these sites and meeting different people, he began gluing a floppy blonde wig onto his balding head. (laughs) And I got that exact quote from the ITV website. <laughs> so he glued a wig on to make himself. And again, you know, some people need need that as a confidence thing. I think it's more common these days that people actually go to salons and obviously get, you know, those sort oh, of hair, hair yeah. things. You and know. I would never bash anybody for doing what no. makes them feel confident. No, of course not. But yeah, it was. it's quite obvious. Yeah. And it, you've not seen a picture of him yet, but yeah, can imagine it's a bit of a bodge job. It's not a uh, professional salon that have done it, that's and done it for him. Yeah, this guy's not the most attractive person. Yeah. Either, so it just. Makes I think him I think now when he's a serial killer, it makes him creepy anyway, doesn't it? You know, and I think. But yeah, um, but like yeah. on a scale of like Ted Bundy to Stephen <laughs> Port, Stephen Port is like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, he's a piece of shit. So yeah, that's true. To say that. Yeah, definitely. During police interviews, Stephen Port was confronted with his internet search history, which detailed a frightening obsession with violent pornography, often depicting young men being drugged and raped. He claimed that this was just regular porn, but it is believed that his interest in this disturbing content led him to commit the murders. Port would add a date rape drug called GHB into his victims' drinks in order to incapacitate them. Incapacitate. Yes, knock them out. Incapacitate. Yeah. I know. I know what yeah. it means. I just can't say it. Incapacitate. Incapacitate. There you go. Them before raping and murdering them in his flat. Postmortem examinations of the four of his victims proved this, and they were all found with very high levels of GHB in their systems. Also, for that, I keep wanting to say GBH. Yeah, <laughs> it's so close to it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that that yeah. just means something completely different. Yeah. So I like <laughs> gotta like train my brain not to say it uh, in the systems as well as other drugs such as poppers, Viagra, and methamphetamine. So why why were none of these blood tests done post mortem when when the bodies were first found? I think some of them were, but again, they thought that they'd been overdosing themselves. Yeah, true. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but is GHB, is that a common drug in, like, the... Isn't that the date rape drug? Yeah, but don't gay men... No, uh, no, no. these poppers. Poppers, I believe, is, so is something they use, but... So if they found the, the date rape, then why would they not think that that's suspicious? I don't know. I don't know. See, I thought that it might have been... I See, I don't even know what it is yeah maybe obviously i know like a, a date rape drug is something that you'd want to do to in order to maybe potentially rape someone yes yeah obviously yeah. it's in the name yep but could that not be used for something else as well or is it maybe specifically just 
I've no idea. I think that's something that we need to look into. Yeah. Well, anyways, it doesn't take an expert to figure out that Stephen Paul had in fact penned Daniel Whitworth's suicide note in order to try and cover his actions. And it's also been proven that he was in fact behind the account of John Luck, the Californian man with whom Thierry was messaging about the drug-fueled orgies. So it was all a cover-up. It was all him. It yeah. was all him. Um, and going back to what you were saying before about like how the police were so stupid. Yeah. For Or like how could they not put it together that yeah. these were connected? And this guy is not the sharpest tool in the box. Yeah. And he is literally... He's clowning them. He's, he's killing people, dumping the bodies... In the same feet places. Feet away from yeah, his house. His, I mean, yeah, one yeah. of them was found at his house. He called 999 himself. Yeah. And he's still getting away with it. That's mad. That's madness. It's just, it infuriates me. On the 23rd of November 2016, Stephen Port was convicted of the assaults, rapes and murders of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth and Jack Taylor, as well as the rapes of three other men he drugged. He was also convicted with 10 counts of administering a substance with intent and four sexual assaults. So this wasn't the first. These weren't the only four people that he'd ever attacked. Wow. He was found guilty on all counts. In total, 11 men were known victims of Port's, Port's crimes, including one who'd been found uh, inco- incoherent, vomiting and in a state of distress in the company of Port in Barking train station again, not long before the murder of Anthony Walgate, which was his first victim. Oh my God. So it's like he was warming himself up. <sighs> yeah. And that's just terrifying. On the 25th of November, he was sentenced to life in prison with a whole life order. Um, so basically, no, he'll, he'll no never. possibility of early release. And good. He'll, yeah, he'll stay in prison. Until he dies. Good. Which is good because, again, comparing our um, court justice system to America's America, do they, they're not shy with the sentences that they hand out. Yeah. Whereas here, you can literally murder someone and get six years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that he, there's no possibility that this guy will ever be on the streets again. I think, you know, especially with it's obviously first degree murder, second degree murder, and and different like that. So um, it's where obviously he's gone out of his way to make these accounts, to make himself more desirable, to lure them back to his apartment, to drug them, to rape them, to murder them. Again, it was cold, calculated decision that he knew he was going to do that. Exactly, it's all premeditated. Yeah. You know, just the the account that that he he made in order to get close to Gabriel's ex boyfriend as well. Yeah. Just how low can you get? Yeah. And to think that you know Thierry thought that they were friends. Yeah, yeah. And. It turns out to be this this, ex-boyfriend's killer. Well, it's you know what's funny is, again, it goes back to that. They always return to the scene of the crime. And what he's trying to do there is that if he's trying to investigate what's going on, what better way to be at the scene of the crime without physically going to the scene of the crime than going close to the people that are looking into him and putting them off the scent. Definitely. You know, saying that he's involved in these orgies. Which, do you know what? If you do that, that's fine but to to say that like the the two boys that 
second and third victims, Daniel and Gabriel, were to, like together at these parties, and the, the the boys hadn't even met each other; they didn't know each other. Wow! And it's just so he's he's, he's tying his own exactly. story, and he's... then he's saying that um, Daniel killed Gabriel, and then gave, and then Daniel commits suicide. In yeah. The suicide note. Of course. And then you're leaving that family believing, not that they did, but you know, believing that your son, brother, boyfriend yeah. uh, has killed someone. And yeah. When really he's a victim himself. That's it. And it just shows how cold and disgusting of a human being this person is. Yeah. Well, I hope he rots in prison for the rest of his life. After Port's conviction, family members of the victims shared their dismay and anger towards the police, who claim they were ignorant and homophobic after they failed to link the murders or invest time and resources into catching the killer. Law enforcement did not question Stephen Port's neighbour, Ryan, who had on one occasion reported that he'd visited his flat and seen a concoction of drugs. They never contacted a handwriting analysis expert to review Daniel Whitworth's suicide note. They mm-hmm. just asked the family. Nor did they check the note for DNA or fingerprints as well as the bottles of drugs. Yep. Um, furthermore, they never provided or investigated the phone records between the victims and Stephen Port, something which Daniel's mother asked for on multiple occasions but were told was too costly. Wow. Uh, John Pape believes that detectives should have been able to clearly distinguish connections between the first two murders and he states that if they had done so, Daniel and Jack may still be alive today. He also claims that there was seemingly an attitude among police officers that being gay is kind of a precursor to risky behaviour such as drug taking and attending chem sex parties. Exactly my point before. And this is 2014 and police are still treating gay people like they treated them back when AIDS. Yeah, yeah, second class citizens. That's you know, yeah, yeah. You cause this. You take the drugs. You're having sex with everybody. You, this you is deal with fault. it. Yeah, yeah. If you die, you die. Yeah. And it, I think it's absolutely disgusting. I agree. And it just goes to show how far we've still got to go. Yes. In terms of equality and treating people the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just because you are gay. You don't deserve to be investigated. It's disgusting. And that is exactly, and it, you know, John Pape really put that very well. Yeah. He, it's true. Yeah. It is true. And let me guess, the police denied homophobia, didn't they? And they uh, denied well, all these actually, things. <laughs> uh, in 2017, the Independent Police Complaints Commission opened an investigation into whether 17 police officers should face disciplinary action due to their negligence in this case. However, the inquests on two of the boys were later quashed, so they couldn't go any further. Right, okay. The families have since opened a civil claim against Met Police, though. Right. Um, Good on them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how that's gone. I think it's all private. Yeah, it will be, usually is, them types of matters. Police, money doesn't, you know... Bring back their son, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's what they deserve because it was utter negligence yeah it was poor again shoddy police work that was built on prejudice that's that's literally what it comes down to it is and i believe that it is i really do think that like we said in the brandon lawson case just referring back to that druggy criminal let him rot yep 
Exactly that. Same ideology here. Gay, doing drugs, going to orgy parties. They deserve it. Yeah. yeah. They, they brought it on themselves. That's it. That is exactly it. And I just want to end it on saying that uh, John Pape ended the BBC documentary uh, with a really thought-provoking question. Uh, he said, would the police have had the same mindset if the victims would have been three women? What a great question. A great question. And that's the thing, is that, um, I'll be honest, I was thinking it myself. Mm-hmm. Or three straight men, even. Yeah. You know, if this would have been three straight men or three straight women, what what would have been the outcome? Because, you know, I personally believe that the police would have investigated these fully and a lot more um, thoroughly. It goes back to that whole thing, whereas if you are a middle to upper class white young woman, you are more likely to have your case solved. If you're a missing person, you're more likely to be found because there's more effort put into searches people and this is like a real scientific thing that people have done um research on is that if you're a white woman then you're you're likely in good hands wow that's crazy and then you know if you're a white man it's a little bit less if you're a black woman it's even less Less. and then it just goes down the thing and it's you know, the same with this is, I don't want to start a debate, but, you know, would would it? If you found a woman dead and then another one turned up in the same position and then another one, I think police would have yeah, gone the, for that. Yeah, 100%. Um, because they look like white knights then, don't they? Yeah. That's the thing where, you know, if they do, if it's gay men, it's, again, it comes back to the... Well, you're putting yourself in that position. Risks mm-hmm. are going to happen. Yeah. Tough shit. And it's the same again, like, as women. And there's, there's been this whole thing about, you know, women being told that if they wear a short skirt, then, you know, you're getting what's coming to you. Yes. You know, you, yeah, yeah. you did it to yourself because you're out there doing whatever you want to do with your body. And you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. I, I, do, I do believe that, but... I don't know. I just it makes me sad because it it could have been prevented if they would have just. That's it. And it, they would have done the jobs right. Stephen Port, he wouldn't have got away with it for that long had the police have been like on top form. No, absolutely not. He would have gave him. He would have been caught very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. If they only would have, you know, the the time when he called nine 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 on the first victim. Yeah. If they would have just kept him in and questioned Pushed him, him further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have cracked. He would have, and that would, unfortunately would still have been one life lost, but not three. That's it. Or four. Four. Yeah, three more. But yeah. So thank you once again for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Um, again, if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter at PITCUK Podcast. We'll see you on the next one.